Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We do not need another such geopolitical event to grasp that the EU must strive for greater decision-making autonomy and greater capacity for action in the world. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor. Nice to be back with you after a brief break. Thanks to Matt for sitting in while I was away. There's certainly a back-to-school vibe here in Brussels, maybe even more than usual, because some people are heading back into offices for the first time in a long time due to the pandemic. And we're set for a very busy political autumn. One of the big challenges is the fallout from Afghanistan which you just heard European Council President Charles Michel reference in a speech this week in Slovenia. We'll talk about whether Afghanistan will change the way the EU acts in the world in just a moment. And later in the podcast, you'll hear from an activist and politician from Germany's Christian Democrats discussing the politics of loneliness, an issue that she says stands to impact businesses and policymakers around Europe, particularly among younger generations. But before we get to that discussion, let's turn to our podcast panel. So great to see Reem Montaz once again, normally in Paris, but this week joining us from the Austrian Alps. Hi, Reem. Hello, hello. Previously in the Austrian Alps, but now back in Berlin, Politico's chief Europe correspondent, Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hello. Back in the bunker. Yeah, so to speak. And uh, back in Brussels, chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there. So let's start with Afghanistan. I know we've talked a fair bit about it uh, on the podcast while I've been away, but it, it really does seem to be still you know, really the story of the the moment. And I think Europe and, and the world really are still coming to terms with the consequences. I mean, I have to say, as someone who covered the Pentagon for three years and, you know, covered, uh, well, Afghanistan and Iraq fairly closely from that vantage point, it's pretty incredible just to see what's happened in recent weeks in Afghanistan. I remember one time going on one of these Pentagon trips to uh, Afghanistan and while the big cheesies were getting the private briefings, a British military officer uh, came out to you know brief the press on the on the state of the war in Afghanistan and he proudly declared that uh, you know NATO and the US had given the Taliban a good biffing was the phrase that he used. And of course, my American colleagues, first of all, looked around and wondered what a good biffing was, a kind of upper class English way of saying they had, you know, been given a good hiding. Anyway, it turned out that the Taliban were pretty good at biffing back and, and we're all kind of seeing the consequences of that. 
maybe if we just start in terms of of how the Europeans are are trying to respond and what they're doing. And of course, the the issue has come up again of strategic autonomy. How much should Europe depend on the Americans? The uh, EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, has an op-ed in the New York Times saying, Europe, Afghanistan is your wake-up call. Curious way to sort of declare strategic autonomy by uh, having an op-ed in an American paper. But I guess maybe that's one way to signal your intentions. But I guess the question is, will they get beyond those intentions in any way? Or, you know, this is by no means a unified view in Europe, but it's a, a strand of thinking represented by France and by others that that Europe needs to be able to do its own thing and be less uh, reliant on America and American decisions Matt, what do you think? Is there any chance of it? Does Afghanistan move the needle in any way in that debate? I don't think it does, to be honest, because I don't think that Europe really had a lot of stake there. If anything, the US had more at stake there, or we were led to believe the US had a lot of stake there over the years in terms of the war on terror. And to me, that's really the interesting thing, because there seems to have been a decision made here in Washington by Biden and his advisors that Afghanistan doesn't really matter anymore in the same way that it did in terms of of fighting terrorism, which despite all of this talk about nation building and turning it into a democracy and so forth, I think from an American perspective was always at the core of of what we were doing there. I'm not an, an expert in this field by any means, but I'm I'm surprised to hear now that no, we we don't need to be there to keep the Taliban from taking control of the of the country because we can fight terrorism throughout the world in other ways, and Afghanistan doesn't have to be such a focus anymore. I, I think from a, a European perspective, there's a lot of angst for other reasons, in particular because of the refugee question. And there's just a lot of hysteria, to be honest, about you know what this means for NATO, what this means for European defense. Well, that brings us to that question, right? What, how much can and should the Europeans be able to do on their own, which has come back to the top of the agenda. So Reem, once again, Emmanuel Macron has been vocal on this issue and, and of course, has suggested being more than vocal. He, you know, floated a plan for a safe zone at Kabul airport. Is he, you know, as sometimes the case, kind of talking more than he acts? Well, let's just start with saying that he floated a plan is actually being ambitious on his behalf. What he said was in two interviews with French media last weekend on Sunday, uh, he said that France and the UK were planning on proposing a quote safe zone, which he said in English. So this is not a problem of translation for those who were trying to kind of retroactively lower expectations. He said safe zone into a draft resolution at the UN Security Council on Afghanistan. What I later discovered is that on Monday, surprise, safe zone was not included in the draft resolution. In fact, multiple diplomats were telling me that safe zone was never on the table of negotiation for this draft resolution, that the only thing that was on the table was this demand and expectation by the Security Council of the Taliban to reopen safely the airport and allow those Afghans who want to leave to do so. But in that resolution, there is actually no consequence, no accountability mechanism, no enforcement mechanism, 
in case the Taliban don't honor that commitment. So it's kind of mind-blowing that right now what the international community is doing is it's actually wanting us to believe that they can treat the Taliban as a full partner in honoring commitments and securing people who want to leave when we are already getting reports of the Taliban going door to door looking for some of these people and using violence against them. Yeah. David, what about uh, NATO? I mean, that's a, an organization you cover pretty closely. You know, this was a decision, the decision to, well, first of all, the decision to, to do this deal with the Taliban was a decision of the Trump administration, uh, the decision to go ahead with a withdrawal plan with a slightly different end date uh, was Joe Biden's decision. In other words, these were US decisions that NATO allies went along with. How big do you think is the is the damage to NATO here, to NATO's credibility and to NATO's unity? Well, there's no question that they own this as much as anyone. And here's where there's a little bit of a problem with Burrell. 21 of the foreign ministers that sit in the EU Foreign Affairs Council that Burrell chairs also sit in the North Atlantic Council when there are foreign affairs ministerials. And any of these foreign ministers could have stood up and put up a real uh, stink when they saw Biden delaying and the Biden administration really taking much longer than many people thought was necessary to decide whether, in fact, it was going to uphold the deal brokered by Trump. They didn't have to do that. And instead, they went along. They went along with this dragged out timeline. They went along at every stage of the game. And so they know they own that. There are going to be repercussions of that, a real discussion that has to happen. But again, for more realistic analysts, this is not a discussion about strategic autonomy for the EU. This is about strategic functionality. They could not have kept that airport open even for one day without the US helping them out. And it's even, you know, more complicated and, and riskier situation, I think, than Reem described, because not only um, was Macron pushing for uh, the safe zone relying on the UN and everybody else, but the EU is now trying to buy off neighbors of Afghanistan, including Pakistan, hoping to stem this potential refugee crisis. In fact, not paying much attention to Islamabad having backed the Taliban for 20 years and not being necessarily a friend or ally of the EU or the West in any way. If I can just jump in here on what they're trying to do in terms of migrants and keeping them in the region. I mean, can you imagine what they did? They passed an agreement with Turkey in 2015 when it came to the Syrian refugees. Turkey, which there are a lot of issues with Turkey and, and the EU, but Turkey is not Pakistan. Keep that in mind. Pakistan, as David just said, has been for 20 years basically keeping up relations with the Taliban and helping the Taliban. And now the West is expecting them to be a good faith, constructive player. I mean, just this just sounds like lunacy. It sounds bonkers. <laughs> well... Bonkers, indeed. No, I just wanted to uh, point out that I, I, I think that uh, this whole thing about strategic autonomy is beginning to look more like something of a political fetish on the part of many leading European politicians who, you know, feel that they need to show something to their domestic audiences in terms of uh, strategic thinking. But there really is is no there there. And, and I don't think that there ever will be as long as the United States is willing to guarantee Europe security, because it's always going to be easier to rely on the Americans. And it's also going to be a lot cheaper. And if you look at these deals, if you look at the 
refugee deal that the EU cut with Erdogan, for example. I think in those first years, they paid uh, 6 billion euros to him to keep the Syrian refugees. And now they're going to go into Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and so forth, and throw some money around there. And it's always going to be cheaper to do that. And it's going to be much less politically controversial to take steps like that than to talk about expeditionary forces and and this, that, and the other. I mean, we, we had the German foreign minister today, Heiko Maas, in Qatar, talking about, you know, under what circumstances Germany might reopen its embassy in Kabul. I mean, the the, the smoke has yet to clear, and he's already you know, measuring the drapes in the new embassy. So it doesn't really suggest that there's an appetite for a serious military approach to any of these situations. And, you know, quite frankly, maybe that's for the better. Mm. I have to say it's amazing how, I mean, for all the, the flaws and everything that was done in Afghanistan, that was you know, a government that had some claim to democratic legitimacy. I mean, there were elections in Afghanistan. They had been swept away and nobody in the European Union or anywhere else seems to be saying, well, hold on, we can't really have anything to do with these people because this is, you know, a revolution. This is the overthrow of a democratic government. Everybody already seems to be making their accommodations with, uh, you know, a pretty uh, reprehensible regime. I mean, if it's anything like it, it was in its previous incarnation when it ruled Afghanistan before. I just want to say one thing. Nothing we said on this podcast right now is us saying that, you know, the Europeans should or shouldn't be involved in the war in Afghanistan. But we are just sort of listening to what these European leaders are talking about and saying in terms of strategic autonomy and about Afghanistan being sort of a wake up moment for it to act on its own or separately from the U.S., I don't think any of us are making a case for or against, actually, the involvement no, in Afghanistan. No, I think we're measuring the rhetoric against the reality, right? David, any final thoughts on NATO? In particular, I'm thinking of the Secretary General, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, who was kind of hung out to dry a couple of times by America over this, right? He, he insisted repeatedly that uh, this is not how the war would end and now has to kind of do a final term with that still ringing in his ears. Yeah, he's going into his last year, what everybody expects is his final year as the top civilian leader at NATO. And this, there's no question this becomes a stain on his legacy. There's, there's no way to argue that this went well. He'd repeatedly said that it would be a conditions-based withdrawal. Uh, Trump kind of threw that out the window, left him hanging out to dry. The other mantra was they went in together and they're coming out together, but they're kind of coming out together in this debacle of chaos and, and madness. And so not sure that looks good for anyone. Plus, he's got to contend with the fact that allies inevitably will be more skeptical of uh, Washington. We know that there is an issue now within the EU. Not having the Brits in uh, the EU means that there's a lack of access to some of the intelligence that the Brits brought into those discussions when they happen at the EU level. It's hard for me to see, and, and Matt may jump in here and disagree, that there isn't some greater skepticism of the US. At the same time, the fact that the US is the only really capable ally doesn't change. And so whether it's Lithuania, uh, Latvia, Estonia in the Baltics, or it's Greece, they're still going to be looking to Washington as their protector, whether that's a 
reasonable thing to presume that, in fact, Washington will come to their defense is something else. But as of now, there just isn't the capability for anybody else to step into that role. And these bigger questions are what are now brought uh, to the fore. You know, if 20 years of occupation doesn't accomplish the goals, will the sanctions change, you know, what's happening in Belarus or Iran? Do they have any hope of influencing Moscow or Beijing, you know, really big powers going forward? Okay, we'll leave it there. Matt, Reem, and David, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. you. Now, right after this short break, we have a very interesting conversation on the politics of loneliness. Stay with us. So now it's time to welcome our colleague Sarah Wheaton, our Chief Policy Correspondent. And Sarah, you've brought us this week's feature conversation. Tell us a little bit about who we'll be hearing from and why. So I was at the European Forum Albach over the weekend, and it aspires to be this very prestigious conversation about European politics and policy. They invite lots of young people to sit in on the sessions, and it's something they're very proud of. But more often, of course, the people who are actually presented as the experts are you know, older people with quite an impressive uh, CV. Yes, I'm expecting this conversation about, uh, you know, how older people are lonely because they can't leave their houses. And somebody who's been writing about health policy for a while is something I'm very familiar with. Um, But then up on stage, there's this young, charismatic woman. She's wearing this this big kind of floppy hat. And uh, you you can see that she's that she's inked on her on her forearms. And she's giving this really interesting discussion about loneliness among young people and uh, how even though we're all totally connected, we all still feel pretty alienated. And I think if you weren't feeling that way before the coronavirus lockdown, you're certainly feeling that way now. And I looked into her a little bit more. It turns out she's been quite a voice for change around Germany. And uh, I wanted to learn more about her perspective. Okay, then let's get straight to that interview now. My name is Diana Kinnert. I'm 30 years old. I'm from Germany and I'm a member of the German Christian Democrats for over 12 years now. So people are saying either way, I'm just a CDU member or I'm a political activist and lobbyist for the modernization of the Conservative Party. But besides that, um, I have several companies and I work as a political advisor in the public sector as well. Great. And so the Christian Democrats in Germany are also known as the CDU and it's Chancellor Merkel's party. So you've written a book called The Translation I've Seen in English. It's called The New Loneliness. What do you mean by that? So five years ago, I started working with the Theresa May government administration in the UK because I got invited as a German politics advisor, policy advisor. And we were starting working on the loneliness ministry, which is the world's first ministry against loneliness. So I've been working um, on loneliness in a political frame for over five years now. And last year I started writing a book about loneliness. And I thought there's just one loneliness where we're talking about the absence or presence of social relationships. But I found out that especially young people are feeling lonely. And the young generation is a generation that is the most connected one and has like several social contacts, not only in the analog world, but also in the digital um, world. So I found out or I was thinking that maybe loneliness is something that could have to do with the quality of social relationships and not only with the quantity. 
So I've, wrote, I've written a book about this modern new loneliness where people maybe are in several social contexts and relationships, but something is not working with the quality of their relationships. So some people might be listening and saying, okay, EU Confidential is a politics podcast. You know, loneliness, this is like a psychology topic. Why did you, as sort of a political activist and lobbyist, like why were you captured by this topic? First, when I arrived in the UK, um, I saw that it's a political discourse there. So I was also very surprised. I thought it's only like a sentiment. It's like a very private feeling. It has nothing to do with politics, especially as coming from a conservative, more libertarian way that the state should like hold back with like several um, measurements. But then I found out that many effects on social relationships and on the matter of loneliness does affect people's health. So it's a public health matter. They say that loneliness kills as fast as 30 cigarettes a day. I found out that especially the UK and Germany as very industrial countries with a very um, dominant industrial history are in the public health sector very based um, on physical health. So I thought, especially as a young person and especially as a person who wants to um, reach an older audience, need a new topic which could build a bridge between them. And I thought mental health and the matter of loneliness could be this very progressive new agenda. When we talk about loneliness, especially in the UK context, as you mentioned, it is often focused on older people, you know, their family and friends have died, they are not very mobile, so they're just kind of stuck in their houses. But you have really seen that this is affecting the younger generation. You talked a little bit about that at the beginning, but can you tell me a bit more about what your research found as far as how sort of this very connected millennial and sort of Gen Z generation, why they are also lonely? So I distinguish between a very old and classic loneliness where we're talking mainly about the elderly and what's missing is infrastructure. But I found out that there is another form of loneliness, which is for me a parallelism to um, old expressionism um, coming from the urban age where people are saying um, it's everything is so loud. I'm so close to everything and there are so many things that I can hear and I can smell and everything is too much. Because everything is too much, um, you just push everyone away and you are not able to go or invest into emotional relationships. And I think this could be one of the main pressure um, points for a younger generation that they are saying, I have a quantity of contacts, but it's just too much. And I don't know how to invest into really belonging and intimacy relationships. Can you tell me a little bit about your process of researching this book and what you heard from people as you spoke to them? So I started in the UK and there were like several um, political programs to tackle loneliness. Um, one was a campaign to um, to fight the stigma of loneliness because there is a big stigma. Another project was that the royal male, so the male men and male women, can knock on the door of people who are lonely at home, who are isolated, who live alone. Um, afterwards, I traveled some countries and governments to find out what they are doing. I was in Israel, so in Tel Aviv, there's a big focus on smart home so that the elderly um, are staying at home as long as possible because they know their neighbors, they know the supermarkets, they know the streets. And um, that's um, like a network of caring, of responsibility. There was a project in Japan where 50 to 70-year-old people are going um, grocery shopping for 70-year-old to 90-year-old people. So it's like a kind of welfare system that some people um, can share responsibility 
But there was the side effect that when the 65-year-old person is coming to the 75-year-old person brings the grocery, um, they were sitting together and checking the products. So it was a new point of meeting each other. And then there was a healthy relationship starting. So with the elderly, that's not the problem of starting new healthy relationships. They just need like the initiative and they need um, a social public sphere where they can meet. And maybe they need someone to bring them together. But that's like the strategy for this very classic old loneliness. I don't find anything very concrete as an example, which is helping against the new loneliness because people are already in contact and you can't just say them look for more quality in your social relationships. I have the feeling that especially in the European Union, all our welfare and all our employment markets are becoming more and more individualistic so that all the responsibilities are not anymore about the company, about the CEOs, about the worker unions. But we have so many um, narratives about um, to go and make your yoga, uh, go and like be healthy at home. And when you come back, um, you need to be very efficient with your working. So I have the feeling that this new kind of startup culture is not really organizing and mobilizing people to work for them and to fight for their worker union rights but to leave them alone. And I think that this kind of sphere where your employment life is getting more and more disruptive and getting more and more less um, reliable is something that is a very um, mental pressure for the young generation. Mm -hmm. And you've also sort of made the argument that loneliness is a force that can be used by those already in power to preserve the status quo, basically. Can you talk me through that a little bit? So first, I was just thinking about loneliness as something that is coming along with um, modern times. But I think um, now that it could be also used as a tool. If CEOs and companies uh, don't want um, their employees to know each other and to f uh, mobilize each other and to be uh, in solidarity with each other to fight against or to um, bring up some worker rights that they want in a very digital age where, for example, health in remote jobs is a new issue, then they can just separate them. And I believe, like not only as a as a member of this generation, but also as someone who is um, working with my own companies, that this is not only killing productivity, but it's also um, degrading your workers to just a function and not um, combine them in your um, economy philosophy. But you've described yourself as sort of a libertarian leading conservative. So is there any role in your view for policymakers or is this the type of thing that people need to figure out for themselves? I mean, as a European person, I was always um, very proud about our welfare system and that everything that we're talking in the political arena is not as um, dualistic like it is in the States. In the States, in my in my point of view, it's always it's um, the companies or it's the state, it's the private sector or it's the state. But we in the European Union for several years, we have worker unions, we have um, public schools, we have like an, a wired network of shared responsibilities. And um, I do believe, especially as a libertarian kind of politician, that um, if we don't have these kind of shared responsibilities within worker unions and CEOs who needs to take responsibility, we create a more and more dualistic uh, political world. And switching gears a little bit, your previous book argued that the German center right needs to modernize, needs to be reformed. And I've read that you've called yourself the Christian Democratic Union's little quota superstar. So first, can you tell me what you mean by that? 
I mean, um, I have in my personal life um, summarized so many um, identity politics points. So I'm female, I'm homosexual, I'm young, I live in the urban area, I'm a digital native. I have all these things that if you go for representation are underrepresented in not only political parties, but also the parliament. So I'm always very careful um, when I'm speaking as a representative of my political party, if they misuse me and if they just pick me to um, represent this very modern access to them, or if um, they really let me speak with my voice in all my political matters. And how do you feel like that's going these days? I mean, um, like I'm in the political party over for more than 10 years. So in the beginning, I was very naive by that. I was working with like several boys in our um, younger generations organization for several projects. And always when uh, the, the media were coming and for doing some pictures, um, everyone said I should be in the picture, but not the boys. And I found it very unfair also back in the days. But now I have uh, like I have a sensibility for it. And I think that I'm very careful now and I um, can work with it. And we're talking as the German election is heating up in a way that few would have expected. The center-left Social Democrats are pulling or even surpassing the CDU in our Politico poll of polls. Obviously, anything could still happen, but the race is much closer than anyone could have imagined even a few months ago. Are there any lessons that your party should already be learning? I mean, the Christian Democrats in Germany are leading the government for 16 years now. So we need to be honest with the things that we haven't done in these years. And it has a lot to do with climate change. Um, it has a lot to do with digitalization. We also um, we're always so proud about um, what everything um, that is associated with made in Germany as a, as a label was um, standing for. But we see that all the other economies are more resilient than others. We weren't um, one of the best countries uh, when Corona, when the COVID um, wave was starting. We, um, our public sector is not even close to be digitalized. Matters like loneliness and mental health and also issues that have to do with the younger generation were ignored for a long time. So all these things that um, are connected to more diverse voices, to a modernization wave, um, all these matters uh, should be more integrated in the CDU. And if we're not doing it, um, then there is a very diverse um, left movement who will um, reach that point. All right, great. Diana, uh, thanks so much for your time and thoughts. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Sarah for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, please spread the word. And if you have ideas or thoughts for future guests or topics, you can always contact us directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. That's it for this week. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.